Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Episode 53, Secular, Sacred, and Profane. Welcome to the year 2022, and welcome to the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regard it as our task to brush history against the grain. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me, as always, is the ghost of history's future, Chris Paget. How are you feeling, Chris? Thank you, Josh. Well, it's too early to tell. What is this, January 5th? Uh, it takes me a good month or two to get into full podcast shape. Those fast twitch muscles need to uh, reignite, but I, I think I think I'm okay. Yeah, I think our plan is that we're gonna. I drank a lot of Bailey's. Over yeah, the we're gonna play ourselves into shape, as as I was just <laughs> saying to you. Uh, we're we're a little you know over our plane weight right now, but we'll we'll get down to uh to our our peak condition as the podcast goes on. So. We are back. It's been a little while since we recorded. Uh, the The holiday season got in the way a little bit. Other life things got in the way, but we are very happy to be back and recording. And we've got a lot to say today, I think, huh? I think we do, because uh, as it turns out, uh, the real world, as it were, never lets us down. It's, uh, it's like perpetual job security uh, for us historians uh, to just look outside the window, really, uh, to see what this mad, 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 mad world is cooking up for us. Yeah, mad, stupid, incompetent, right? It's just, it's, it really is at this moment, everywhere you go, you just see a, a breakdown. Things are just constantly falling apart, it seems, uh, right, right now. And, um, you know, as we'll talk about, there's really no reason we should be surprised by this. Um, if you're paying attention that this, this all seems pretty... Um, pretty easy to predict, but, uh, but still it can be, uh, it can be enlightening, I guess, to go out in the world and see how few things actually work in our society at this point. You know, I had to take the car into the shop today. So I'm really hoping that one of the things that works <laughs> is our nation's auto mechanic. That's the only thing I heard. I heard. Uh, but yeah. not, there's always my skateboard, yeah. you know, uh, I live in a town that's mostly flat so I could probably get around on the skateboard okay. Well, speaking of things that don't work very well, how about our oh, our political system? Yeah, not really running at tip-top shape right now, is it? Not quite maybe as the founders uh, expected, or maybe this is exactly what we should expect from uh, these a system created 200-plus years ago, huh? Just like they drew it up back in 87, yep. I tell you. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, sitting as we are in the anniversary of the Capitol insurrection, uh, that of January 6th, of course, 2021, hard to believe that we've survived another year to commemorate this anniversary. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm reminded, Josh, of what a surreal experience that really was as we sat in front of, well, either our TVs or social media and watched those scenes play out, you know, as hordes 
of Trump-inspired crazies, uh, self-styled militia and super patriots converged on the Capitol and with all manner of makeshift weapons from what uh, bear spray to sharpened flagpoles used as you know blunt instruments uh, and any manner of missile projections uh, literally attacked the Capitol building and its overstrained Capitol police force. And you know I based on the pit I hadn't you know the, the feeling the sick feeling I had the pit of my stomach, uh, last January 6th, you know, I was revisiting that and thinking, you know, what was it exactly? I mean, no, no shortage of commentary has followed in the year since. And I think, you know, many of the angles uh, have been covered. And there's, a, there's an ongoing inquiry, apparently, in Congress as we speak. Uh, what will come of that? Who knows? But I was thinking about that feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I, what was that exactly? I mean, it was certainly you know, startling uh, image, but I think it was just more if it had happened in Des Moines or Dayton, mm. Ohio, would we have felt the same about it? No, I don't think so. We have felt something, but not not exactly that feeling we had uh, watching the scenes play out in, in real time last year. Yeah. And I and so that was the question for, you know, f for our podcast today, as we thought about this, you know, what <laughs> what exactly is it about that venue in particular, uh, you know, if you've ever been to the nation's capital, uh, you understand that it is by design a, a city of monuments. And certainly the Capitol building is one of the most prominent as it is perched on Capitol Hill. Uh, it's an unmistakable focal point in that city of monuments. And I, I think you know, what it reflects then is a way that we have been conditioned over time to understand the meaning of those monuments in the larger story of who we are and where we come from. You know, it's been said that unlike European nations, when the United States was was formed, it wasn't already front loaded with a sacred landscape you know, to bolster its special or even providential sense of itself and, and history. You know, and like, say, a nation like Italy, which was uh, formally unified uh, in the uh, mid-19th century, you know, it, it, Italy came front-loaded with a good, what, almost 2,000 years of history already, as I say, front-loaded into its national uh, story. But the United States... Uh, founded as we were, uh, you know, from settler colonialism, you know, in, in a foreign land, uh, had no deep antecedents of European identity. There was, of course, plenty of Native American landscape to ponder, but for the formation of the United States in the vein of a Western nation state ruled over by, you know, Anglo peoples, uh, not so much. And so, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons for that is we never had an established state church uh, and mm -hmm. nothing to compare with the presence of, the, say, the Roman Catholic Church, right, in the political and military affairs of Europe. And typically it's been left to the religious figures to anoint and consecrate, you know, the sacred points of the landscape. So, you know, goodness knows when you travel around Europe today, you can hardly go anywhere without bumping into, what, some you know, some church edifice, some saint's shrine or perhaps martyr's shrine, you know, the sort of 
Joan of Arc was executed here, or Thomas of Becket was martyred here, or, oh, I don't know, St. Patrick first entered Ireland here, something like that? Along the way, you might be on a, a pilgrimage route, right, that has been mm-hmm. traversed for, for centuries at that point. So there's that, that sense of that kind of hallowed ground um, that has that, that kind of spiritual, deep spiritual meaning um, that goes beyond, you know, the meaning of the nation or anything like that, but, but has this kind of deep connection with the land and, 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 and people. Yeah, what we might call a kind of cosmic connection, right, that goes beyond the literal temporal place into mm-hmm. something, uh, well, let's say, eternal or, you know, something along those lines. Uh, well, in the United States, I don't know, maybe the closest we come, you travel up and down the Atlantic coast, you know, from town to town, the little inns and and uh, and stopover points, you might see signs that uh, proclaim what? George Washington slept here. <laughs> yeah, the but, ultimate. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, I, truth be told, I was thinking about this beforehand and I thought, well, you know, look, if you've ever been to Memphis, did you visit, you know, down on Beale Street? Did you go visit uh, Sun Studio? Because they put a piece of tape on the ground. It's still there where Elvis stood when he first uh Recorded for Sam Phillips back in the 50s. Does that count? Yeah, I think that's our version of a, you know, a piece of the true cross or something like that. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, sure. I mean, they call Elvis the king, right? So, yep. but, you know, I mean, the fetish of where George Washington slept. <laughs> you know, we, it does give us the rudiments, I guess, of a kind of canonical story form. You know, you think of the canon, the church canon of, say, the Roman Catholic Church with its many saints uh, a great majority of whom have, you know, holidays or, or, or fast days or even feast days, you know, named after them. Uh, but but uh, I guess we do have a Washington's birthday. Typically, uh, you know, my gag with the students used to be that's that's when you have uh, mattress sales. That's how we <laughs> signify the yeah the canonical day for George Washington. But you know, but we but we had to make it up. I mean, we had to manufacture these things, and ultimately we do uh, create the semblance. I would say by the mid nineteenth century, certainly um, of something like our own version of a canonical story form. It's called U.S. history, you know, mm-hmm. and it and it has its own its own touchstones. One of which, architecturally, uh, a place of ground. Uh, of landscape would be, I think, the U.S. Capitol building in Washington. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, in, in, in the structure, in the, in the meaning placed in it, it's almost our, our temple to democracy in, in some ways. Yeah, a kind of secular temple, you might say, right? Yeah. And I think that's, again, what we were feeling, you know, because we've been conditioned to think of it that way. And, and look, that was all by design. Let's face it. If you, if you go into the Capitol building today, you, you can't help but be impressed. It's that, if, uh, that same effect, you know, that the architects of the Gothic cathedrals of Europe were after, right? That as you entered this place of worship, your eyes would be uh, immediately drawn you know, skywards, uh, you know, to to uh, upwards, if you will, to to the heavens. Uh, but the same was true in the Capitol, you know, because as you enter uh, into the rotunda, that center place of the Capitol building, you're met with this, you know, vaulted uh, ceiling, right? It stretches some 180 feet off the ground, this interior space, you know, I, I would think of something like maybe what the Oh, I don't know, the Pantheon in Rome or maybe the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, these interior, mm. you know, kind of vast interior domed 
places. And not surprisingly, those, those two examples would signify churches. This one, a secular temple of the American political state. Now, I did a little bit of searching, Josh, because I knew the backstory in this, but I wanted to get it down. So I got on the, uh, you know, the government website. Uh, and sure enough, it explains uh, that uh, on the ceiling of the dome itself, the painted ceiling is a remarkable scene of what we're calling the secular slash sacred or, or, or you know, secular sacred storytelling of the U.S., uh, a scene painted in 1865, by the way, the year the Civil War ended, uh, the remodeling of the Capitol building was going on during the Civil War. When Lincoln first gave his inaugural, uh, the dome hadn't even been completed. And that kind of reflected a, what a, a kind of broken nation at the time. So if you're into the kind of cosmic meaning of all this stuff, the completion of that dome by war's end. Uh, represented some kind of story arc uh, in its own right. Well, okay, so on the ceiling, they commissioned, they commissioned the Italian muralist Constantino Brumidi to paint what came to be called the Apotheosis of Washington. The Apotheosis of Washington. Now, reading from the website, in the eye of the U.S. Capitol building's rotunda depicts George Washington rising to the heavens in glory flanked by females figure, uh, female figures representing liberty and victory and surrounded by six groups of other figures. The fresco is suspended 180 feet above the rotunda floor and covers an area of 4,664 square feet. Close quote. So yeah, a, a big picture, you might say, uh, that becomes the focal point uh, of your vision as you behold the remarkable uh, rotunda domed enclosure. Uh, I, I guess we're going to call that a secular sacred landscape, Josh. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but maybe you can explain why it isn't. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think part of what's happening here is that it's that devotional desire that humans have, right? This desire to engage in devotional practices. And, you know, part of what this suggests is that this entire idea of, of the secular is it's kind of a conceit. And often when we, we talk about, you know, secular societies and, and, and this sort of thing, what we're really talking about is the uh, substitution of, you know, things that are explicitly religious devotion with the kind of secular devotion to things like this. Um, and, you know, the creation of the nation almost requires that um, these these specific kind of devotional religious practices be augmented or replaced by these new devotional practices to to the nation, to the founders, to uh, you know these these new saints of of the national idea. Yeah, that's really well said, and and you know let's let's emphasize here all this was done by by design. In other words, yeah. th those sort of nation builders, whether they be you know the United States or the European nation states or any others. Uh, and the United States, though we tend to think of it as a new country, I think you've pointed out before in, in the history of, of modern nation states now is, is one of the older nation states. Yeah. So establishing a kind of pattern here, you know, in creating an exalted national story that in its own way works rather like, say, the stories that, you know, major religions tell mm -hmm. the kind of doctrinal gospel scriptural stories of where 
uh, say, a faith tradition and a church had come from. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, taking a note from that book is the then storytelling of the nation state. It really becomes the big story, you might say, of where we come from and who by uh, you know, dint of providence we are destined forever to be, uh, complete with this national history now, uh, the, an origin myth. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. hardly an American uh, exists living today who couldn't at least get the rudiments of, you know, what something about the pilgrims and yeah. and uh, the Mayflower and, and, you know, advancing quickly to the seminal point of the American Revolution uh, and the the canonical authority, again, like a religious uh, collection of stories, a canonical authority of the story of the nation's birth. Uh, complete with founding fathers, you know, there were just going straight biblical, right? We're, we're yeah. drawing them out like uh, Latter-day biblical patriarchs or something. And so, you know, the apotheosis of George Washington on the rotunda, you know, Capitol Dome, uh, which is explicitly religious and its uh, depiction of his ascending uh, to heaven, as it were, uh, then blends that secular tradition that you're talking about into what is by turns a more kind of avowedly uh, sacred tradition. Now, just just to give us some some uh, some update here, I, I ordered recently because I'm working on a project um, that involves how we tell the American story, the story of U.S. history, in other words. And I was thinking about the bicentennial from 1976, which was the 200th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, Josh, I know you probably had other concerns in 1976 beyond what was happening in the bicentennial celebration. Um, being a little bit ahead of you, however, I'm old <laughs> enough to remember uh, being taken as a school kid, uh, sixth grade, I think it was, uh, on a field trip uh, out to Sparks, Nevada. I was living in Reno at the time. And yes, even in Sparks, Nevada, the Freedom Train, the Bicentennial Freedom Train, which was making its way across the country, stopped at John Asquaga's Nugget and Casino. Uh, heretofore, <laughs> Speaking of hallowed ground, right? <laughs> well, I was going to say, heretofore made sacred by the presence of Bertha and Tina, the performing elephants. Uh, <laughs> on this day, Bertha and Tina were upstaged by the arrival of the Freedom Train. And uh, so, yeah, we lined up dutifully as kids and went through what was a collection of Smithsonian memorabilia uh, that was meant to, again, signify America's 200 years of independence uh, and to draw that kind of secular, sacred devotion, you know, from the minds of, uh, you know, of the school kids. Now, uh, so I ordered a book. Uh, the Bicentennial of the United States of America, the official report that was uh, authorized now by the Congress, uh, which began in 1973, prepping for the Bicentennial of 1976. Uh, and Congress authorized the creation now of the American Revolution Bicentennial Administration. Uh, and I was that act that I was reading about, I thought you might find interesting Congress authorized that, quote, as this nation approaches the bicentennial of its birth and historic events preceding and associated with the American Revolution, which are of such a major significance in the development of our national heritage of individual liberty, representative government, and the attainment of equal and available mm -hmm. rights, which also had so profound an influence throughout the world. 
It is appropriate and desirable to provide for the, observer, the observance and commemoration of this an anniversary. So I think in its own way, that's suggesting that the story, the canonical story, canonical story of American independence and the growth of the U.S. nation, particularly as it was celebrated then in 1976 and authorized by Congress, this uh, administrative body to oversee that celebration, that it all taken together affirms that what? That canonical story, that, that secular, sacred narrative of America as an exceptional place, America as an exalted, the American story as an exalted story, doesn't it? Yeah, um, and that, that, that thing you read, um, I mean, that almost could be like if there was a, a secular church, the nation, that would be the mm -hmm. thing that everybody stands up and recites that mm -hmm. and then gets to sit down, right? You read in your little prayer book, please stand. And then everybody <laughs> recites that and then you get to sit down after. Um, Part of the, yeah, litur I mean, the liturgy or something. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's such a succinct compilation of all the, the greatest hits of, of American demo devotional practice and American exceptionalism, right? There you go. I love that idea of, of devotional practice. You're absolutely right. Uh, now, look, I'm going to put it to you, Josh, because each state had its own bicentennial commission by virtue of this uh, act of Congress. Uh, and, and the state commissions were typically headed up by the governor of each state. So here's the question. Can you recall, for example, who the head of Alabama's bicentennial commission was? <laughs> no. Uh, a segregationist, I'm guessing? I don't know. Yes. I'll give you, you get partial credit on this version of Jeopardy. Um, yeah, it wasn't Bear Bryant, right? The coach of the uh, University yeah. of Alabama. It was George Wallace, Governor George okay. Wallace, most famous in the annals of American political history for, as you suggested, being perhaps the most outspoken segregationist, racial segregationist in an age of outspoken racial segregationists. Mm -hmm. That is George Wallace, who's, who's best remembered, I guess, for his famous statement in 1963, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. As he stood in the schoolhouse door, by the way, of the University of Alabama, promising to keep it from becoming racially integrated. That George Wallace. I, I, I could have, I should have guessed that one, actually. Can we do this again? Can we record that part and I'll get it right? Well, you got partial credit. I told you. That's true. You know? That's true. Yeah, I'll give you extra credit later. Now, listen, the reason I mentioned Alabama is because, as you might suggest, uh, the Alabama's own history and the larger history of the United States, of course, was marked by, among other things, uh, the Confederacy, that is secession from the nation, right? And uh, the uh, joining of the Confederate States of America uh, during the civil war. Uh, so, it, it, you know, you, you might have thought it would have been uh, rather awkward, right, for other mm -hmm. southern states to, to celebrate the bicentennial when for at least, what, I don't know, four years, they were not actually part of it. So I don't know what you call a 196 year anniversary. But no, <laughs> uh, all of that was smoothed over. And those states likewise celebrated the bicentennial. In fact, they haven't quit celebrating because one of the things that happened uh, during the break uh, is that uh, as I was, uh, you know, beguiling the tedium, as it were, of uh, the winter break, I looked on, on Twitter and happened to find our friend uh, Woody Holton, who always has some uh, fire fires burning, history fires burning on Twitter, had posted a document by the Alabama Board of Education recently passed 
uh, a resolution limiting lessons on race and history in the Georgia school system. Now, of course, you know, a little you said bit Georgia, of Georgia, sorry. You said Georgia. Oh, oh, sorry, Alabama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Alabama. Because you know, Georgia has her own version of this. <laughs> but yeah, mm-hmm. Alabama. Uh, this is a good state of Alabama. And uh, so what we know here is this is part of a movement, right? That has kind of been parallel to, among other things, well, you know, the insurrection of last January 2021. That is a, a kind of Trump-inspired white nationalist uh, movement underfoot in many of the legislatures, uh, particularly those of the red states, as we say, including states like Alabama, to actually uh, proscribe and prohibit the teaching of U.S. history in a particular vein that wishes to draw any attention whatsoever to uh, the fact of racial divide in our country's past. And uh, if you look at the resolution, a lot of this was, of course, in response to New York Times uh, publishing, New York Times Magazine publishing in 2019 of the 1619 Project, which was an effort to center a narrative of black history and the larger American history. And, you know, that was seen as somehow an attack on the secular sacred story, the canonical story of American history. Uh, Now, it's interesting because the resolution begins, whereas the Alabama Board of Education believes that all individuals are endowed with equal inalienable rights without respect to race or sex. Now, gee, you read that, that's language pretty much taken right out of the Declaration of Independence, which is sometimes itself referred to as American scripture and that secular sacred tradition, American scripture, the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, that language reflects the words of the Declaration itself. And so you would think, well, gee, uh, this has got to be, what, a document for freedom and equality, right? Yeah, it gets off to a rousing start there. Although, you know, knowing how limited the actual decoration uh, was in, in providing freedom and liberty to <laughs> the population, it's it's not that hard to, to make the leap that maybe this is not quite what it sounds. Clearly, you were not serving on any of the bicentennial boards. <laughs> if only. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, you don't have to wait very long because the very next whereas... We'll take care of it. It says, whereas concepts that impute fault, blame, a tendency to oppress others, or the need to feel guilt or anguish to persons solely because of their race or sex violate the premises of individual rights, equal opportunity, individual merit, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, let's break this down. What they're saying is if you presume to teach, say, the history of slavery, in which you actually draw the point that slavery was a system Uh, based on a system of enslavement, in other words, based on a kind of racialized understanding of who was entitled to human rights and who wasn't, that you would be guilty of violating the Board of Education's strict rule now prohibiting such imputation of blame or fault to any one particular racial group. You got that? Yeah, I mean, that's... So cynical because, you know, the whole thing from the conservative side is people are too sensitive and we can't say anything anymore. And then here they are claiming victimhood and, you know, protecting mm-hmm. people from the possibility mm-hmm. they might feel a sense of guilt or shame. Mm-hmm. Um, we must protect our, our babies from from that feeling, I guess. Um, no, it's it's a hugely, hugely cynical, cynical document uh, based on, on that reading. 
Exactly, exactly. And and I think it's interesting, you know, that it sort of dresses itself up as this kind of, you know, principled, fair-minded, yeah. egalitarian document when, in fact, you know, the bottom line is we want to preserve the white nationalist, uh, secular, sacred history story of America. Now, if you get back, if you manage to hang with it, you get down beyond the whereases and the therefores, you finally get to a further resolved, be it further resolved, right, that the Alabama mm -hmm. State Board of Education recognizes that slavery and racism are betrayals of the founding principles of the United States, including freedom, equity, justice, and humanity, and that individuals living today should not be punished or discriminated against because of past actions committed by members of the same race, sex, etc. Mm, boy. What do you think? That's that's pretty terrible. <laughs> I'm speechless. I, I, I don't even know what to say about that. But... Um, yeah, it's such a reversal of of the language of social justice, but you know, in in pursuit of or in 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 the in favor of those at the top of this racial caste hierarchy. Um, you know, I I was kind of blown away by the first part of it, but that that truly uh, hit me in the chest a little bit. Yeah, and I think it is sort of stunning in its in its own way, not unlike the attack of January sixth, yeah. you know, on the on the Capitol book. It sort of hits you in the solar plexus or something, you know. And look, there's a lot we could we could say about it, you know, its artifice and its pretension and it dis deeply disingenuous. Um, but among the other many problems, though, is the story rendered. If you took it on its face and told the story according to that prescription. Mm -hmm. You know, that story doesn't explain at all who we are today, right? No, I mean, can no. you get from point A to point B using that story form? No, and it explicitly is intended not to, right, in, in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's supposed to be a very selective account of, of who and what we are, to use a past episode title of ours. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's the, the, the term that keeps coming up for me is perversion, right? That this is a perversion of you know, ideas of, of social justice and equality. It's a perversion of what history should be. It's a perversion of, um, of, of just so many things that, that we actually try to take seriously and, and, and think about. Um, and, and this document is, you know, in many ways a slap in the face of, I, I think, our entire profession, right? Uh, at least for, I'll just speak for ourselves, right? What we want to do in the classroom, what we want to do as historians. So it's, it's man... It's far worse than I thought it was going to be, to tell the truth. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, that's that's the rub, because when we start, yeah, why exactly? You know, what exactly? You know, and, and we sort of dig down into this thing because it's easy enough on an emotional level to feel revulsion for sure. Um, but, you know, as as you suggest, we start digging down into it as as historians and trying to understand and some, you know, granular level you know what what that leaves us what kind of what kind of story do do we get you know as if who we are today bears any resemblance to that prescriptive of white mythology white nationalist mythology in fact you know in truth it wasn't it wasn't even accurate then you know mm -hmm. in, in other words it never america never was that prescriptive nation or or people you know but here's the thing and this is what i've come up with you know is it it relies, what does it rely on 
for its veracity. Well, it relies, like all canonical stories do, on its own authority mm-hmm. as a secular, sacred, and even scriptural story. In other words, it reminded me of, you know, doing medieval history back in grad school, what medieval Christians called sola scriptura, the Latin yeah. sola scriptura, which meant authority by scripture alone, mm-hmm. right? Such that if you want to prove the truth of it, you just have to 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 read what it says, right? Right, uh, and and in effect, what this does, it, it, you know, it makes the story essentially untouchable, right? In other mm-hmm. words, no matter how poorly that story serves the living as an authentic narrative of who we really are, where we really come from, and how this, you know, story might help possibly resolve our many contradictions. You know, by honoring, let's say, you know, the personhood and humanity of the many people that have actually been silenced and marginalized or simply left out of the standard version, secular scriptural narrative. You know, one that's always predominated, by the way. I mean, in effect, what Alabama is calling for here isn't all that different from what I would judge the standard version history of the United States to have been for much of its tenure, you know, as it was created, as that story was created, that national history was first created really in the in the 19th century. Um, it just strikes us as, as so out of touch with who we understand ourselves to be now that it, it leaves itself essentially, you know, useless. I mean, certainly offensive, but, but also useless in trying to resolve any of these uh, you know, any of these fundamental uh, threats. And I guess that that brings us back then to, to January 6th, because in a way, what the Board of Education of Alabama is proposing and many other states that have followed suit is a, is a kind of scriptural narrative. As I said, it is always predominating the storytelling, in which now the agents of what Trumpian white nationalism are simply trying to formally legislate. You know, kind of the, the narrative version of what we saw last January 6th in all those signs and, and placards and strange insignias of those who attacked the Capitol, which reflected a kind of curious blend. Uh, what would you say, Josh, of, uh, you know, from the patches on their jackets to the, the protest signs they carried, many other kinds of insignia, a kind of strange blend of sort of cryptic, religious, avowedly Christian, white nationalistic identity, right? Yeah. And, you know, speaking of perversion of history, how many historical symbols, uh, particularly they like to carry their Germanic and Anglo-Saxon, you know, what they see at least is those those symbols. So it's it's also this kind of quasi mystical historical, I mean, there's no other way to say it, but fascist set Mm -hmm. of of, of symbols, which is, you know, exactly what the fascists did in the Nazis did in, in uh, Germany as well as kind of uh, co-opt all these past symbols in pursuit of their own view of what the world is and what it should be. So very familiar, we'll just say, um, in their, their use of, of those kind of spiritual mystic uh, and, and historical symbols. Yeah, well said. And, and I know you have one more example before we go into the next segment of what we like to sometimes call history outside our window. And, and, and we're going to pursue this here just for a second, because not only is it incredibly poignant, I think, and, and uh, you know, necessary reminder of the, we're I tempted to call the real world 
legacy of things like mm -hmm. nationalism and imperialism, and in this case, colonialism, that as you talk about it, you know, I want our listeners to keep in mind just how poorly suited these secular, sacred historical narratives are to apply in any useful, constructive way whatsoever to the kind of uh, real world situation you're going to tell us about. It was a wonderful surprise to see one of our truly favorite musicians, Ndu Mokhtar, show up in the pages of the New York Times. You know, not in the music reviews, but in the editorial section. He was invited to write on the legacy of, of colonialism, which is another one of these things where, you know, there's a, there's a narrative we can tell where colonialism ended, right? Decolonization occurred. These are past tense things. You know, Niger is a free country. It's independent. Um, but what Mdu Mokhtar was writing about is this question of can colonialism be overcome? So here we have this thing that's supposedly over, right? France has granted, had granted independence to Niger uh, decades ago. And yet here we are in the year 20, at the time, 2021. And Mokhtar is uh, still trying to, to, to uh, you know, reveal to people that the legacy is still very much in the front of his mind for, for people living in Africa or former colonies anywhere in the world. It's harder for them to simply uh, come to the conclusion that colonialism ended at a certain point. Uh, they still see it, as you said, outside their window. So I want to read a little bit from it because it's really a beautiful piece. Uh, we will include a link to it when this episode uh, actually uh, is available. But he says, I grew up learning guitar in a contraption made from wood and bicycle wire. Uh, Mokhtar, by the way, is a, uh, a one of the luminaries of a, of a genre of, of music known as uh, Tisumaran or Asuf or sometimes called Desert Blues, which is this very interesting mix of uh, some traditional uh, Tuareg uh, music uh, added to uh, or with the addition of kind of American guitar rock or guitar blues as well, and often electrified, as he'll get to. So he grew up learning guitar on a contraption made from wood and bicycle wire. When I finally got a real guitar, I plugged it into an amplifier that ran on batteries. In fact, I still use battery-powered amplifiers. A handful of albums and a dozen tours into my career, I still can't depend on Niger's power grid when it's time to play music. Unlike most American and European musicians, my band can't plug their equipment into a wall. As he points out uh, elsewhere in his piece, one of the reasons that uh, France is still very much involved in Niger is because of uh, access to um, uranium. And that uranium goes back and it is the power source for, uh, for big portions of France. And so, as he says, you know, the, the irony of uh, a country that has access to this power source and yet doesn't have a functioning electric uh, or, you know, system of, of power um, where you can even play a guitar. He goes on to say, people often ask me how Niger can be helped and whether colonialism can be overcome. I'm not optimistic. While the French flag no longer flies in Niger, the ugly truth is that my country remains a resource colony for France because of its mines. There's no clear way out of our abject poverty. And every day, France's presence and influence becomes more deeply embedded and inextricable from our nation's being. Colonialism still exists in Niger because it has been allowed to exist. But moving past colonialism is not a problem Nigerians should be tasked with. It is not something we can do ourselves and it shouldn't be. I do what I can with my music, but I can only amplify my own message, a message conveyed through a battery-operated guitar that doesn't always turn on. 
So I apologize for that long, long excerpt there, but it's it's beautiful, powerful writing. And you know, the 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 joy of seeing his name um, in the New York Times, as I said, was uh, also then uh, conf- had confronting confronting the, the the tragedy of of the story he's telling. Um, a country that again achieved something, achieved independence, won its uh, won its freedom, and yet still exists within a power structure that, uh, as Mokhtar says, he's not optimistic that will ever go away. Oh, it's very poignant uh, and amazingly uh, lucid because it presents that picture which sometimes academics manage to fog the mirror a bit, but he, I thought, had incredible economy and being able to explain, for example, how locals have really not many economic options, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in the economy that was created by the French colony state. So they work for the uranium mines, right? And this is very destructive of health and welfare. So, you know, the very thing that's sort of poisoning them, right, these jobs, they then go back to their homes and they don't have so much as a as a wall outlet yeah. because that uranium is being used, by the way, to, to fuel the French nuclear industry. So nuclear yeah. power in particular in France, but they don't have as much as a, a wall outlet to plug, never mind a guitar amp, you know, into, but just even, I, I would imagine, basic lighting and, and other appliances, you know, electrical appliances we use on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, incredibly poignant and uh, very clear illustration, you know, uh, of these contemporary issues that then, and I guess our point is, and, and you're going to take us into the next segment, is that if we attempt to understand that dilemma by referring to what, the French imperial history? I mean, France's own sacred narrative, right? Um, You're not gonna find an answer there because what that narrative is going to be about is colonial, what, colonial uplift, Mm -hmm. bringing civilization, modernization to Africa. Yeah. Something like that. Well, and and then, you know, not to get too much into French, uh, you know, domestic uh, ideas, but but the entire, you know, uh, justification for for empire was this kind of colorblind imperialism, right? Which then becomes a colorblind nationalism in France itself, which is that we don't recognize these things. We don't recognize these differences. Um, And, you know, while it sounds nice, I guess, to some people that uh, that people are all seeing the same. The fact is that the legacy of colonialism means that people are not the same. Um, and that needs to be confronted as opposed to hidden behind this conceit of, of colorblind policy. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, that's that's a huge part of what we try to do in this podcast is understand those legacies um, to, you know, to use the term in a different way, to decolonize the way we think about history. And I think one of the things that that's most important in doing that is um, is getting outside European norms in terms of thinking about about the past. I just happened to look down <laughs> next to my computer I have all these little yellow sticky notes all over the place where I'll take notes before a class or something like that. And I, I just, this is totally coincidental, by the way, I swear to God, I have a note that says there's nothing normal, normal about European norms. So that just, <laughs> just happens to be there. There's nothing normal about, about European norms. And yet so often they are used as ways of understanding the progress of history, the evolutionary nature of history, the normal means in which societies go from uh, one type of society to another type of society. And then, you know, also built into that is the kind of judgmental aspect of failure, that if you haven't followed this path in the way that Europeans did, then that makes you a, a, a failure. And ultimately, you know, the, that sense of these European norms, these Western norms, 
um, which uh, you know obviously is another legacy of, of colonialism and European global power, become very difficult to get out uh, from from under. And in doing because of that, they very much are going to um, affect the way we see the the past, not just you know in global societies, but even within European European society itself. So. As we get to our next segment, what I want to talk about a little bit is the way we talk about religion in world history and how European norms have led us to, I think, misunderstand the importance of religion or even what religion means for societies of the past. Well, you know, as we talk about this uh, episode, Josh, we wanted to tap into a lot of what we've been uh, reading uh, and thinking about uh, over the last several months, uh, some of which we've already broached, you know, on history against the grain in sort of tentative ways. And mm-hmm. and we've wanted uh, our audience to understand this very much as a kind of ex- exploration. That is part of what we're doing as historians you know, is is a great almost reconnaissance of the subjects that we've been teaching all along, yes. whether it be U.S. history or world history or Asian history, et cetera, a kind of reconnaissance that sees us going back into those subjects, crossing back over borders uh, to see how it all looks, you know, given the, the you know, remarkable changes that we've confronted uh, and, and conditions that we've confronted in the last few years in in particular globally, uh, certainly with the pandemic, but also as we've said, many movements for social and racial justice. Um, And as we've watched these systems uh, uh, in which we live, these these, uh, political and economic systems struggle to provide even uh, often, you know, basic services, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in times of duress, it's given us all this pause to think you know, about how the stories we've often told about how these systems came to be need to be reassessed. And in particular with today's theme, how you are now going to look at this interesting, as we call it today, the the, the kind of the, the, you know, the intertwining of the secular and the sacred to hopefully shine some light then on that fundamental question, you know, is, is, is how did we get here anyway? Yeah. No, I, I thank you for that. I, you know, I think that the ultimate issue is that we want to try to understand the past, but so many of the, so much of the language we use to understand the past actually obscures our our ability to understand, you know, the, our subjects. Basically, um, part of that, a big part of that is is the power structure, as we've talked about. You know, power wants to tell its own story. I think too often as historians, we've allowed power to tell its story um, without thinking about you know the stories of the people power is acting upon, whose voices for for reasons that are you know real, we just don't have access sometimes or it's difficult to access, but often we also just ignore those, 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 those accounts. We take power at its word in other ways. And, you know, as, as most people, I think know that, you know, religion and spirituality have become tied into the workings of power historically. And I think there's truth to that, but I think there's more we need to understand about, uh, about religion and spirituality beyond just 
the way power understands those things. And so, you know, basically what I'm saying here is that, you know, a lot of people, as you get to the, the a new year, you know, you, you approach that in different ways. You go to the side, I'm going to go to the gym or something like that. For me, what I want to do is really think about, well, what do I want to explore in this, in this coming year? Right? What, what are the issues that I need to dig further into? And, you know, religion is a thing I, 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 uh, I, I ended up, uh, focusing on because I'm increasingly suspicious of the way we discuss religion in world history. Um, I think we're doing a disservice in the way we present this stuff and the kind of standard textbook accounts of religion, religion and spirituality, because they do such a poor job, I think, as I've said, of actually making sense of the experiences of the populations involved. And I think a big part of this, as I was suggesting earlier, reflects the privileging of a European and then a European Christian perspective of religion and power. Um, because the Catholic Church presented itself as both universal and exclusionary, in the sense that if you were Christian, if you were Catholic, that was to the exclusion of other ideologies. We often think of this as some kind of norm rather than a very particular case. But really, if you start looking around, historically, it's hard to find other examples of religious systems that uh, present themselves both universal and exclusionary in that way. Um, you know, Islam is probably the closest case, but I think I won't get into this right now. I think even Islam um, is not quite as explicit about this as the Catholic Church was. Um, not only would that sense of religion as universal and exclusionary uh, be a wrong way to understand communities globally, religious communities globally, but I actually don't even think it does a very good job describing belief or practice in Europe. Um, and so this is an example where we have this view of what religion is, this sense of how people engage with religion, but I don't think that that sense is very accurate, again, to the lived experiences of people's lives. So I'm going to quote now from the very aptly named William Christian. This is, I guess, a coincidence that he became a, a scholar of Christianity. But William Christian, um, in writing about uh, 16th century Spain, has differentiated, quote, the Catholicism of the church universal based on the sacraments, the Roman liturgy, and the Roman calendar, and a local one based on particular sacred particular sacred places, images, and relics, locally chosen patron saints, idiosyncratic ceremonies, and a unique calendar built up from the settlement's own sacred history. So what he's describing then is not a universal church, although there is a universal aspect to, to uh, Christian belief, certainly, but a very localized aspect of religion, where from town to town, from region to region in Spain, people would have their own feast days, their own holidays, uh, the, you know, the days where they come together and celebrate, which are not part of the traditional Roman Catholic calendar. They would have their own shrines. They would choose their own saints. The purpose of those saints was very local as well. They would take some more universal saints, um, like for instance, for instance, uh, Mary herself, uh, and they would um, use her for very particular purposes. In other words, you pray to Mary for this very specific thing. And what comes out of this, this exploration of local religion in 16th century Spain is not a sense of Christianity as this all-encompassing uh, uh, spiritual system, but as a very broad system that allows for all kinds of local variation. Now, those, those variations were not enough to warrant the interference of the Holy Inquisition. Um, the Inquisition was mainly concerned with uh, conversos, uh, you know, uh, converted Jews and, and Muslims, and then real problems of heresy. Um, but certainly religious reformers in Spain would commonly scoff at their rural countrymen as, quote, ignorant, pagan, and lax. 
and dismissed local practices as magical or superstitious. Now, William Christian points out that although these reformers often spoke of these local religions in this way, if you actually looked at the beliefs of even the royal family, they weren't that much different than that of, of uh, these rural Christians. And so from starting, starting from this idea of a universal church, what we end up instead is a vastly diverse set of beliefs within a country we always, almost always associate with Catholicism and the universality of that belief system. So I guess the idea then just from that one quick example, you know, how useful do you think, and I'll throw this out to you if, if you have any response, how useful is the idea of Christian Europe if we want to try to understand people's actual lives, right? That, that notion that Europe is Christian, does it actually tell us, how much does that actually tell us, would you say? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if you're talking about the way people worship and practice, yeah. um, when you recognize that kind of, uh, you know, differentiation and, and, you know, local style of, of, of worship, often a sync, sync, we call it a syncretism, right. right? You know, sort of the blending of, you know, sort of mainstream, uh, you know, in this case, Christian, professed Christian practices and ideals with more traditional, local, maybe even pagan uh, practices, right? We see a lot of that in the New World, yes. right? In, right, you right. Know, in the Spanish Empire, as Jesuits and Franciscans and others have to come pretty quickly to understand that if they're going to convert native peoples into this universal uh, faith, they're going to have to accept a certain amount of syncretism, mm -hmm. that is, practices they bring with them that weren't necessarily part of that that universal faith. So I think religion, religious culture generally, you do see that. And the only reason it might surprise us is because we tend to become conditioned by those universal stories, those yeah. master narratives, or call them whatever you want, uh, you know, in, in secular terms, those national histories. Um, conditioned to think of them as sort of uniform and uh and universal but but you're right the way people live that's not the case yeah and i mean ultimately then if we tell the traditional accounts of you know quote unquote christian europe or we can talk about you know hindu india and i'll get to that in a second or or you know confucian china whatever you know whatever these mass generalizations we uh we often throw out what we're really talking about is power right and power is an interesting thing to study. Obviously, it's really important to understand the workings of power, but it's a poor way to understand the actual experiences of, of humans historically who don't experience power in the same way that power presents itself, itself to us in their own documents, in their own accounts, in their own narratives. Um, and so, you know, if Christian then is an overly simplistic way to, uh, to think of Europe, then how much worse is it to use, for instance, Hinduism as a way to understand the Indian past, right? Um, a doctrine that, you know, has has uh, legacies, has, uh, you know, borrows from a, a longer history in India, but really, you know, Hinduism as we know it today is in many ways a, a late 18th, early 19th century construction. Um, so, you know, the, the tendency then is, you know, when we get to China and the world history uh, survey, then we talk about Confucianism. When we get to India, we talk about Hinduism and Buddhism uh, when we get to, uh, you know, Arabia, then it's time to talk about Islam. And so we make these direct connections between the spiritual system and the location. Um, but in doing that, we really ignore the reality and the lived experience of people itself. Let me, let me just throw in no, on you for, for a second, because I think you know, the question you asked is such a good one about, does it even make sense to say Christian Europe? And, you know, when I used to do 
back in grad school, starving student that I was, do I did medieval Europe and uh, would TA the you know the medieval Europe classes, and and I thought you know one of the things they said you know they would refer to Christendom, yeah, you know with the with that with the suffix D O M like kingdom, but Christendom, mm-hmm. right? And I, and I thought that in some ways that was much more honest, yeah. Because instead of pretending that it reflected a universal adherence to a single faith, uniform faith, it was about power, you know. And so these systems like the Catholic Church, for example, the one you're using, if we want to render it in a narrative term or a narrative form as as an institution of power that has a certain reach, for example, geographically, then, you know, maybe maybe we do say, Christendom, mm-hmm. you know, or, or European Christendom or something, because we know what in that case we're talking about. Otherwise, to try to essentialize all the peoples of Europe and all their various beliefs, syncretic, etc., as Christian Europe, I, I totally agree with you. I think yeah. it's less accurate and less intellectually honest. Right. And I think what, what, you, what you're suggesting there is that we just need to be, to use that term you just used, we need to be honest about what we're actually talking about, right? That there's a way of talking about Christianity in terms of power, and there's a way of talking about Christianity or any other spiritual system for that matter, in terms of practice, in terms of belief, in terms of, you know, what people get out of, out of their connection to these, to these systems. And, uh, and as long as we're, we're clear about that, then I think we can do a better job. Now, uh, I, I, I had this, uh, grad school professor who, uh, while he was a, a, actually a Chinese historian worked on migration, he uh, later in his career, he worked in Thailand. He spent a lot of time in Thailand, um, actually looking at migratory patterns uh, there. But one of the things he was struck by spending time in Thailand was that what we have there is, is a nation that, you know, defined itself and is often thought of and identified as, as Buddhist. But his own, in, in his own experience in, you know, local Thai villages and, and even in the cities was how few of people's daily spiritual practices actually had much to do with Buddhism. That day to day. Um, you know, Buddhism was among the things that, that you know, informed the way they, they went about their life. But they're actually much more likely, you know, like those 16th century Castilian Christians, for, for that matter, to engage with their own local shrines, their own deities, and conform more with what we would place, you know, in, under the umbrella of, of animistic practice. And he actually went so far as to say, you know, we put, put, place, pay so much attention to the numbers of Christians and the numbers of, of Muslims, but you could make a real I think a, a pretty strong case. They're actually far more animist worshipers in the world today than than uh, Christians or Muslims combined. And so, uh, you know, again, we have this case where you can say Thai, Thailand is Buddhist, and that is technically accurate, but it doesn't necessarily get into, you know, practice and belief on a day to day level uh, with within the country. Now, the Catholic Church itself was, you know, at least a hierarchical institution with some real political and cultural reach. I'm not trying to deny that to any degree. And as you suggested, um, you know, the idea of Christendom, the connection with power is one way to, to get to that. But one of the things we need to also understand is how unique that situation was. There really is not nothing else quite like the Catholic church in other places historically. Um, you can't really find that perfect equivalent uh, structure anywhere else. Now, Islamic cali- uh, caliphs were sometimes mister- misunderstood by European observers and later uh, historians to be equivalent to popes and emperors. I don't know if you ever see that uh, stated. The caliphs were uh, were like popes and emperors. But from everything I've, I've seen and read, um, the, the caliphs didn't seem to have taken much of a role in doctrine at all. 
and certainly not in imposing local practice, right? Um, and so that, that the idea of them as kind of the head of a of a universal church, like a pope, doesn't really hold much water. In South and Southeast Asia, there is a tradition of Buddhist monarchy, of of monarchs who present themselves as idealized Buddhists, sometimes as reincarnations of the Buddha, or as manifestations at the very least. But that seems to be more of a leg legitimizing device rather than a claim to authority over Buddhism. And so, you know, we're using this this Catholic concept of this European concept, the way religions function, the way they structure themselves, and trying to understand other societies, other regions in similar ways, it leads to these dead ends, and it leads to obscuring our sense of that past of those people, as opposed to enlightening us. Then to confuse matters further, there's this modern tendency of Europeans to present their own societies, you know, by the time we get to the 19th century, certainly, increasingly in terms of materialism and secularism, which they then used to contrast with Asian spirituality, right? So that kind of material spiritual dichotomy is talked about all the time, particularly late in the 19th century, um, as Europeans become uh, increasingly, uh, I guess, um, dissatisfied with materialism of their societies. They'll often now look to Asia as this kind of uh, balm for the materialism of their own societies. And so that dichotomy that Asians are spiritual while Europeans are material has also led to this tendency to understand Asian political matters in religious terms and spiritual terms, right? And that also then obscures that past and it mystifies that past. It suggests that that kind of the conflicts, the competitions of you know Asian societies, whether that's India or China or Japan, um, to give the, the the key examples, that their conflicts always have a spiritual uh, element as opposed to being matters of direct political competition. So I want to I'll, I'll kind of wrap up here, but I want to give this example of India during the Mughal times and the last of the great Mughals, as they're called, Aurangzeb, uh, the Emperor Aurangzeb who is frequently associated with this idea of intolerance. He is going to be uh, compared unfavorably to his predecessors, people like Akbar, who is lauded even in, in Western sources as this incredibly tolerant man who was a spiritual seeker. He was Muslim, but he also listened to you know Hindu scholars and Jesuit uh, priests and Sikhs and other religious communities uh, in and around India. He held discussions and he had a general curiosity about the world beyond just his own spiritual system. Then from, from that beginning, then Aurangzeb is presented as the one who broke that history of tolerance. He reneged on the promise of what the Mughal Empire could, could have been, which was an empire of all Indians, uh, which was never actually all that true under Akbar either, by the way. Um, and introduced or reintroduced into, in, into India, intolerance, persecution, the destruction of Hindu monuments, and therefore became the precursor to this longer history of Hindu-Muslim conflict in the subcontinent. That history was very much written uh, by first British imperialists um, as they began to construct their own history of their new colony, and then was taken up often by Hindu nationalists as well. Uh, because that story also served their own sense um, of persecution within their own land. Now, you know, going back to my own uh, uh, 
college days uh, when I was getting my, my bachelor, uh, we read a book in my Indian history class um, where that was very much the story that was presented. More recently, though, scholars like uh, Barbara and Thomas Metcalf, I'll throw their names out there because they've written a, a really a nice, concise history of modern India, have, have used recent scholarship to begin pushing back against that version of the story of Aurangzeb as, uh, as understood simply in, term, in terms of intolerance, as breaking with the traditions of tolerance in, uh, in Mughal India. And as they point out, just to, to make a really simple point, Aurangzeb uh, during his reign, which was a very long one, was almost constantly at war. Um, our history, our story of Aurangzeb as a persecutor of, of Hindus would suggest that violence was perpetrated against Hindus, but in fact, his warfare was directed almost entirely against other Muslim kingdoms, right? That the competition, the conflict uh, that he was engaged in was not particularly religious, and to the extent it was, um, it was other Muslim monarchs in India who bore the brunt of his war making. In addition, Aurangzeb, uh, again, pushing back against this idea of, of him as a persecutor, as a breaker of this bond between Hindus and Mus Muslims, which Akbar had established, actually had more non-Muslim courtiers in his court than any previous um, uh, Mughal monarch, and more than a quarter of his mansab holders, who are uh, almost like a, a, a you know the, the officials and bureaucrats, or I guess nobility of the empire, uh, a quarter of his mansab holders were Hindus, in addition to all his leading generals. So instead of this being a, a, an empire dominated by Muslims and being directed against the interest of Hindus, we start getting a much more complex story. And by the way, this is not an attempt to, uh, you know, burnish the reputation of Aurangzeb. He was an emperor and he was violent and he engaged in, in acts that were horrific. But understanding those acts purely in terms of religious conflict muddies the waters of what was ultimately competition and conflict of the sort we're used to seeing everywhere else in the world as well. To quote from uh, the Metcalfs, uh, the regimes, and he, they are talking now about uh, both the Mughal and the Delhi Sultanate, these Muslim regimes um, that dominated early modern India. The regimes were Muslim in that they were led by Muslims, patronized amongst others, learned and holy Muslim leaders and justified their existence in Islamic terms, but loyalty, not religious affiliation, defined participation, and non-Muslim elites were central to the functioning of Sultanate and Mughal regimes. There were no programs of mass, much less, much less forced conversion. And to continue on, that's the end, end quote, um, the famous destruction of Hindu temples, which Aurangzeb is often charged with, and people often throw out the numbers of temples he destroyed. Um, while that did happen, as you look into the actual sources, what you realize is he was destroying those, those Hindu temples, not because of some kind of crusade against Hinduism, but because those temples were centers of, uh, of disaffection against his regime. And again, that is not to justify destruction of temples, but to make sense of, sense of them in ways that are not particularly based around ideas of religious conflict. And so I guess what I'm getting at here is as we look at that larger past, that non-European past, uh, in, in addition, we need to be more attuned to this idea that much of what has been presented in particular terms by a history of European scholarship can be understood in fundamentally different terms. Um, these stories of, of religious conflict, which are often presented about, about Asia or spiritual confrontations or whatever you want to call them, 
um, often have other stories as well. And by contrast, you know, as we move into the era of, of uh, into the modern era, and Europeans increasingly want to present their own civilization in secular terms, I think, and this gets us back to our main theme. I think we should also be more attuned to the ways in which that rhetoric of secularism hides new forms of devotion under the guise of that sense of secularism. And, you know, as Europeans also come to uh, adopt these ideas of tolerance, of secularism, uh, of, of civilization, we shouldn't be fooled by those concepts. While the idea of tolerance makes sense and sounds good, we should also understand that at the same time Europeans are adopting those notions, they're also adopting new cruelties and new supremacies and new prejudices, which would continue to pockmark the world and create, as we kind of wrap up here, the Niger that Ndu Makhdar is writing about and still feels the legacy of those cruelties and supremacies of imperialism. Well, you know, what's uh, one of the many things that's very interesting about this, Josh, is that, you know, as as an audience for for understanding, not not just as as for historians trying to, you know, to to make pieces fit together, but as an audience, you know, and listening is we're having to deal with, uh, you know, concepts of historical telling that play out, you know, on on, on different levels more or less simultaneously. Yeah. So, uh, or, or not as the case may be. In other words, so you have the story of, of, of Aurangzeb, mm -hmm. right? As a Mughal emperor that plays out in some temporal space, you know, uh, what is it? What is it? The, is it seven, 16th, 16th century, century yeah. 17th century, mid century to, to about 1707. Uh, I think he dies. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's sort of the contemporary frame of what's happening, you know, in Mughal India. Uh, but then you have European historians of a certain temporal space, you know, let's say at the time of the British Empire or something. So by the, you know, the mid eight, the mid 19th century going forward into the 20th century, who are attempting to tell these stories about India at the time of the Mughal Empire, even as their own nation state is presuming to colonize uh, India. Uh, and then you have the more recent frame of contemporary historians, you know, within, say, the last generation, like the Metcalfs you mentioned, who are attempting to kind of unwrap that story through the lens of European empire, the story of Mughal India through that kind of static lens mm -hmm. of religious understanding, you know, these, these kind of binaries, yeah. right? You know, where, you know, Aurangzeb is is a perse persecutor of, of, of Hindus, mm -hmm. right? You know, a Muslim persecutor. So you have these sort of static categories, but as you pointed out, you know, th that notion itself is, is problematic because when you bother to look on the ground locally at what was actually happening at the point of historical, you know, uh, uh, action, uh, you see a much more fluid situation, yeah. you know? You, yes, you do see interests, certainly, um, that are fairly definable, but then you also see a lot of fluidity, mm -hmm. you know, with, with something less than just what purely doctrinaire yeah. adherence to these more universal notions. And so as historians, we, I think part of what you're saying is we can't, 
you know, we've, we've called it the sovereignty trap before, yeah. and, and I'm not sure, maybe it plays the same for, you know, religious categories too, particularly if we see institutions of religious power like the Catholic Church as sovereigns in their own right, you know. Uh, but, but the power trap, the sovereignty trap, we have to be aware of how in the telling of those narratives, even when they're wrapped in something like, uh, you know, sacred cloth, you know, and, and anointed with religious oils or something, you know, uh, that we have to be, uh, you know, aware of how they tend to reduce yeah. our options for understanding the much more fluid and more complicated lives that people actually lived. Yeah. No, I, I think, yeah, that's, that's, I th thank you for that. And I, you know, one of the things that, that struck me as you were talking is, just the, the temporal aspect of that, I think is, it's really important to note. I didn't note this initially, but you know, if you think about Aurangzeb's, Aurangzeb's reign, I think it's from 1655 to 1707, I want to say, right? So think about what's happened in Europe during those, during those years. That's the time of the 30 years war, right? A time of massive religious conflict of extreme violence. But the end of that is where, um, you know, at least in the traditional narrative, that Europeans then settle in 1680. I'm forgetting the name of the treaty, the Treaty of Utrecht. I don't know. I've, I've, Utrecht. Yeah, is that it? Okay. See, my, I know my European history. Not Westphalia. No, no. Uh, Westphalia? Maybe it's Westphalia. I don't know. Anyway, um, so you know, when those those conflicts come to an end in, 18, uh, in, in 1680, then I think that's where you start getting that sense of European history that, okay, now these conflicts are over. Now we move on to this new era of secularism, of tolerance, Right. That then can can come after that period in which those spiritual conflicts were the central part of, of politics in Europe. But because these histories always operate in conversation with each other, right, in the sense that Europeans understand themselves in comparison to the other and understand the other in comparison to themselves, what then becomes part of the presentation of Indian history in, in, in this case is the idea that where Europeans move past those religious conflicts to establish an era of tolerance uh, that moves past religious conflict and moves into other kinds of conflicts, by the way, um, Indians never got over this. And so, you know, as you, as you read like British observers in the 19th century, as they're confronting India, you know, in their limited capacity, you see this constant refrain that, you know, Indians can only be understood in terms of religion and spirituality, right? So what then uh, emerged from this is that on the one hand, you can link together this 17th century history of religious conflict in India and Europe, but where uh, historians then take that is, but Europeans move past it, whereas Indians could never move past that. And that is why India is, uh, you know, in the straits that it is at this moment, whether that's the 19th century or the 20th century. So the very understanding of European history then becomes a cudgel used against Indians to try to explain their own chaos and conflict in a way that doesn't require us to actually understand the workings of, of power and colonialism and the role of colonialism in constructing those conditions of poverty and conflict in India. All right, so as we move on to, uh, to segment three now, we're going to try to connect some dots here and, and try to, you know, understand the way that history has pr been presented and the difference between the presentation of history, as I said earlier, the way power has presented itself, and then the lived experiences 
of of people. And you know, one thing that I was referring to at the at the end there is this European increased European sense themselves as living in secular societies. Um, but I think what what you want to get into now is the way in which within these secular societies in the United States, a society that specifically is, uh, you know, uh, doesn't have an established church, there were still uh, forms of devotion, uh, structures of power uh, that, that took on the forms of devotion that existed within uh, American society, but also, as you'll get into, people who live their lives apart from those traditional American devotional acts and practices. Yeah, you know, I'm going to be quoting you from now on, uh, Josh, because you, you came up with this the other day when we were chatting and you said it again or something very much like it early in, in your segment here uh, on episode 53, is uh, that we too often let power speak for itself uh, in history. And man, I love that because, you know, under a different guise, that's what we sometimes call the, the sovereignty mm -hmm. trap, for example, but which today I think takes on an additional meaning because it suggests that in effect what power does, whether it be the Roman Catholic Church, you know, or the British Empire, uh, or in this case, the United States uh, of America, the nation state, uh, is that it not only does, does power, you know, get to tell its own story too often, but often in telling that story creates that that kind of gospel or kind of uh, sacred narrative that seems so inviolable, the, uh, inviolable, yeah. excuse, cannot be violated. In other words, that that uh, what the Alabama Board of Education is doing is trying to defend not unlike crusaders, you know, at, at the walls or something of Antioch, you know, is trying to defend the American scripture against all the, what, all the, uh, um, you know, heretical yeah. <laughs> or infidel forces that seek to take it down. Uh, so it doesn't always have to literally be a church. It can be a nation state uh, that nevertheless weaves that kind of inviolable narrative. And so the, the example I'm going to look at here uh, is from the American Revolution, because it's often that the story in, in national history of the American Revolution takes on that kind of canonization. Right. If you think of the canon, yep. you know, you get what do you get? You get certain, um, you know, certain mythic leaders, yep. you know, and a saints, in other words, uh, you know, who are, are, you know, eventually carved into places like Mount Rushmore or something. Mm -hmm the canonization of great leaders. You get the, the fundamental telling of the story itself, which in the case of the American Revolution, orients around certain familiar tropes, whether it be the Boston Tea Party or Paul Revere's ride, uh, you know, um, which by the way, these canonical elements like Paul Revere's ride were only added later to the story. You can add mythologizing elements to the story later, you just can't take them away. So yes. we got to be clear about how these narratives work, yeah. right? So if you want to add to the canonical telling of the story, the, the, the scriptural telling of the story, you can add Paul Revere. And that's what Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the poet, did in the middle of the next century. He wrote the famous poem that even I as a kid memorized. It might be the first poem of any note that I memorized as a kid in elementary school was the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, because up to that point, Revere had been kind of an obscure figure in the, in the actual 
historical telling of the American Revolution. But thanks to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere will become a canonical, mm -hmm. you know, uh, he'll become a canonical figure in the telling of that, that sacred national uh, story. So, uh, yeah, but it's not just sort of the boosters of the story. You know, even modern historians, unless we think it's all, you know, somehow, you know, behind us, uh, one of the great uh, American historians, academic historians of the last uh, couple of generations was was Pauline Meyer. And Pauline Meyer wrote a, a book about the Declaration of the Independence called American Scripture, mm. Making of the Declaration of Independence. Now, for Pauline Meyer, there was a certain irony in that, but nevertheless, American Scripture, you know, she's making the argument that Declaration of Independence is a kind of canonical source for understanding where America comes from and who America is supposed to be. Yeah. Now, the problem we get is uh, that historians, we tend to be troublemakers, right? Mm. You know, we tend to be a bit iconoclastic. So if you hold up certain idols, you know, maybe uh, maybe we want to take them down a pick or two because we're suspicious about the claims of power and the story that power tells about itself because, you know, not unlike what, you know, morticians or, you know, others who constantly see the ravages of death and destruction. You know, history is like a mortuary mm -hmm. for us. We're constantly seeing the ravages of history, the catalog of horrors from history. Uh, and so when someone comes along with a saint, a story of a saint, you know, it's we've talked about this before. It's not just because we're cynical necessarily, it's what we're skeptical, yeah. right? It's like, ooh, there are not too many saints, you know. Uh, but now there is this sort of tradition, even as I suggest that, of history writing that is very much telling the story, the lives of saints. It's mm -hmm. called hiography, yeah. right? You know, um, yeah. and not surprisingly, in the Catholic Church tradition, there was no shortage of saints' biographies. You know, um, but that's also true in American history as well. Then, so the writing of the life of Washington, for example, we've talked about that in the past. You know, becomes a part of the canonical source of of uh, hiography of the American narrative tradition. Uh, and even more recently, we, we haven't, um, you know, we haven't bullied around our friend John Meacham recently, you know, but Meacham <clears throat> writes that kind of history too. You know, we won a Pulitzer Prize in biography, Absolutely. you know, for writing about Andrew Jackson, mm -hmm. you know, uh, who mm -hmm. was, well, uh, a mercurial figure to say the least, but, you know, in rendering Jackson a kind of sainted figure of the American political tradition, we'd say John Meacham, is doing that kind of canonical history. Uh, but there has also been certainly at times, virtually every step of the way, you know, some smart aleck who didn't know any better, right, who actually wanted to get to a more interesting, you know, less streamlined, less hallowed, you know, story. And in recent years, one of those who's done that with the American Revolution is Alan Taylor. Uh, and Alan is now at University of Virginia for many years. He was in our neck of the woods, University of California, Davis. He's twice won the, the Pulitzer Prize for, for historical writing, but not like John Meacham, you know, who also won the Pulitzer. Taylor is much more the iconoclast, I think, of that canonical tradition. In 2016, he wrote a book called uh, American Revolutions. Did not win the Pulitzer Prize, but it, it helped, I think, reset 
the story uh, that had been brewing for a while. Um, this was meant to be a synthesis. It was meant to be available to the general reader. And what Taylor was doing, and he has a bibliography of 55 pages, was taking what he thought I think was the best of American scholarship in recent uh, a couple of recent generations that have been less canonical, less hiographic, uh, that is less interested in writing the, the stories of saints and more understanding the complexity of America's past, um, the contested nature of America's past. Now, one of those who reviews Taylor's work in the New York Times in 2016 is Gordon Wood, another guy who we've mentioned from time to time. And I would forgive our audience if they didn't remember exactly who Gordon Wood was. But Gordon Wood was very much more a part of what I would call that canonical tradition of writing about the American Revolution. Uh, in particular, Gordon Wood, part of what's sometimes called the consensus view of American history, was part of a group of, of historians in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And, and, and Gordon Wood's still living. So he wrote uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Radicalism of the American Revolution in 1994. So recent, you know, many of many of those who were thought to be my, you know, the, the, the historians that I would learn from going to graduate school back in the 80s and, and early 90s. So uh, Gordon Wood's the guy who's going to review now the Young Turk, Alan Taylor in the New York Times. Uh, and he acknowledges Taylor's view of the American Revolution is very different than of his own generation. He says, by broadening the context, Alan Taylor aims to desacralize the revolution, to explode popular myths about it, and to rip aside the mantle of nobility, dignity, and heroism that he believes has too long covered up its sordid <laughs> and bloody reality. And uh, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't resist, Josh, because when Gordon Wood accuses uh, Alan Taylor of desacralizing the revolution, let's be clear what he's saying, taking something that is sacred and ruining it. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, Alan Taylor is the, the money changes in the temple. He's the, he's, He's Jesus coming in and kicking him out. <laughs> As if, if, if Gordon just wants to say, is nothing sacred? Yeah. You know, he says the question raised, because uh, as we'll see, I mean, Taylor wants to talk about not just the saints' lives, that is the so-called founding fathers. And you think about the sacralization of historical characters because founding fathers is coming directly out of the Hebrew scriptural mm -hmm. tradition, right? What Christians call the Old Testament and the idea that there were, you know, patriarchal figures, tribal patriarchal figures that represented, you know, the covenant tradition through the ages. And so America, uh, you know, being uh, steadfastly resistant, it seemed to an established church, there would be no Roman Catholic Christendom or even a Church of Englandum ruling over America, nevertheless wants that kind of uh, what would you call that? The kind of uh, gravitas mm -hmm. of a, a kind of an intonation, really, of something sacred. So, you know, we create our own founding fathers. Instead of Abraham, who do we have? We have George Washington, you know. Uh, we have our prophets. Yeah, we have, it's, yeah. A, it's analogous. 
Yeah. Okay. So, and there, I mean, Washington's great because, you know, if you get to the Capitol building, I'm pretty sure that's where you see, I want to say maybe the apotheosis of Washington. And I forget which one of those portrait painters did it, but it shows George Washington in death ascending yeah. to heaven with like, you know, angels flying around and that kind of thing. Uh, okay. So yeah, Taylor is not terribly satisfied with that kind of canonical telling because he wants to talk about what about everybody else? You know, what about women? What about poor people? What about non-English speakers that were living in the colonies? What about enslaved people? What about Native American? These people's lives were also a part of that history, but they tend to get either left out, dismissed, or, or homogenized somehow in the telling of that more canonical story. So this bothers Gordon Wood, and Gordon Wood says at the end, the question raised by Taylor's book is this, can a revolution conceived mainly as sordid, racist, and divisive, can that be the inspiration for a nation? Hmm. In other words, can the way that Taylor tell Alan Taylor tells the story, acknowledging racism, acknowledging division, acknowledging the sordid aspects of the American Revolution, and believe me, brother, there were plenty of those, you know, like the burning of Indian villages and the killing of civilians. I mean, you know, any number of sort of war crimes coming right out of the War of Independence. If you're going to tell that story, ask Gordon Wood, can that be an inspiration for a nation? Well, it's interesting because that's, that's the kind of thing that's usually left unsaid, right? People are usually not that explicit about, you know, these kind of ideological aspects of this, but he's coming right out and saying that, no, we need to tell the story. And maybe, you know, partially even suggesting the story he's wants to tell is a wrong one it's not truly accurate right he's not because you know in the quote you read he's not saying that taylor is wrong he's saying that the story he's telling does not serve the needs of of this 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 nation right that um there are reasons beyond truth and facts uh to to do history and while that's always been the case it's hard to find historians who just come out and say that right that basically I mean, is there another way to read that than, than him saying that Taylor's not wrong on his facts or interpretations, but he's wrong in trying to upset this founding myth, right? <laughs> uh, you know, the nations, like everything else, have these founding myths. You know, the, the you know, Romulus and Remus for, for Rome and Washington and Jefferson for, for the United States. Um, but it's, it's the same mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, as, as you were talking there, I, I remembered that I have this definition of the sacred from Emile Durkheim, the, the famous... Anthropology. I just want to read a little bit of it because it, it really does, uh, you know, get back to what you were saying about about the sacredness of these things, and and I think gets back to what Gordon Wood wants as well. Um, so I'm quoting here actually from uh, Wengro and Graeber in in Dawn of of Everything, um, but they say in Emil Durkheim's classic definition of the sacred as that which is set apart, removed from the world, and placed on a pedestal, at some time literally and at other times figuratively because of its imperceptible connection with a higher force or being. And it's hard to see what Gordon Wood is saying as anything other than this American founding myth should be sacralized, should be placed on a pedestal uh, because of its connection to this higher force or being, which to him is, is the nation itself, right? And that because of, of its connection to the nation that you cannot attack the sacred thing, to attack the sacred thing is to pull down everything, right? Is, is to, to uh, undermine yeah. that entire that, that the entire notion of it. Um, so yeah, I, I just it's just interesting because you know we think of the sacred in in obviously spiritual terms, 
but in that version of the definition, we can see how often things that are not explicitly religious or spiritual can so easily be, be sacralized as well. Yeah, that's a good point. It doesn't have to be formal religious doctrine, yeah. literally scripture. It doesn't have to be formal religious institutions, mm -hmm. you know, uh, literally the church. In other words, we're talking about a propensity as in Durkheim's definition is classic, you know, of, of calling the sacred that which is set apart from, yeah. you know, that can only be approached with reverence, yeah. you know, uh, that is understood to be inviolable, as I've been saying. Yeah. And so when we when we kind of broaden the definition that way, it really opens things up, mm -hmm. you know, because it allows us to see things like the insurrection on January 6th and even our visceral reaction mm -hmm. to it as being caught up in that kind of conditioning effect from the time we're little kids in public school or whatever, doing the Pledge of Allegiance yeah. and learning about the great presidents and the system of checks and balances. I mean, in a whole sort of uh, indoctrination instruction into what is the American, the, the exceptional American mm -hmm. system of government, you know, that, that bequeaths and, 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 and manifests greater liberty, greater freedom on its people than, you know, than, than any other. Right. So, uh, but, but an interesting sleight of hand is going on there because as Alan Taylor saying, well, how would we know if that's actually true? In other words, I understand it as a canonical, you know, source. I understand it, the American narrative. In other words, the standard version history. I understand it as a kind of national scripture. Um, but does it does it actually conform to our historical experience uh, then or now? In other words, is it a very good explanation for what happened in the American Revolution? in empirical terms, on the ground, you know, in terms of the, of the complex mix of things, you know, and, and, and look, just by asking that question, you're going to get in trouble, aren't you? I mean, you're going to get in trouble with the Alabama Board of Education, <laughs> Definitely, aren't yeah. you? Well, and so just to, yeah, so, yeah, just to go on a little bit, because Durkheim, can, you know, continues, or at least their quote, quotation of Durkheim continues, because he, he says the clearest expression of the sacred was a Polynesian term taboo. Uh, T-A-B-U, which we've turned into taboo, T-A-B-O-O. And taboo literally means not to be touched, right? And so, the, you know, what we're talking about here is is all these elements where you you just can't, you can't, you know, again, that's exactly what the Alabama legislator is saying is that you cannot touch these things, right? These things yeah. that, that, you know, we assume are basic truths of our national religion, right? I mean, almost literally are, are the, the religion of our nation, um, are things that cannot be touched. And if you attempt to undermine these, these stories, if you attempt to pull them down, then you are literally, I think, committing a crime. Isn't that how it's understood uh, in, uh, yeah. yes. in that document you read? Yeah, the National Park Service will come and, and arrest you if you jump up into Abraham Lincoln's lap at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., uh, I'm guessing. Right. Yeah, don't right. don't jump up into Lincoln's lab. You can't no. touch Abraham. Don't touch him. You know, um, yeah. but and that's that's exactly what happened on January or uh, January 6th mm -hmm. of last year is we saw a laying on of hands of, of, of yes. dirty, angry, costumed, vile hands 
on the sacred escutcheon of the U.S. or something like that, you know. Uh, and I think that, you know, truly, you know, if I'm being fully, you know, full disclosure here, I have to come to terms with that because, like, if you can't touch it, then what is it to you? You know, now we may not like the way that, you know, angry white nationalists, you know, violently did it because we don't like angry white violent nationalism, you know, but you know, I guess if I were playing devil's advocate, I'd say, well, yeah, you know, but what's going on inside that building? It's just as profane. Yeah. <laughs> except, except how are we to frame that as anything other than sacrilegious for me to say? I mean, if I said that in the PRC these days, what would they do to me? Yeah. You Because they're passing the same laws, yeah. right? In other words, yeah, don't don't darken the door of the revolution mm -hmm. and Mao and chairman Mao and the, you know, we'll come get you, you know? So, all right. So in the case of Alan Taylor's book, you know, he makes the case kind of like we make on history against the grain. How are we going to possibly account for the lived experiences of the vast majority of Americans who are not part of that canonical storytelling? if we can't ask questions about what happened to them and what, how they lived, you know, if, in other words, in the case of the American revolution, if I can't take the story, if I can only take the story of George Washington, Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, maybe, maybe Abigail Adams, maybe Mercy Otis Warren, who's the broad, uh, Betsy Fra uh, uh, Ross, mm -hmm. who supposedly knitted the flag. You know, I mean, there's certain approved folks, right? But if I can't talk say about, enslaved black women yeah. during the revolution, then how are any of us, but specifically how are black women living in America today supposed to understand their historical pedigree in the American narrative? You know, how are they, in other words, look, the problem, and this came to me, Josh, and, and in the interest of time, I'm just gonna relate it quickly as I was sitting there bleary eyed this morning preparing to take my car to the uh, the service department, you know, the local dealer, um, hoping to be first in line, I selected the 7 a.m. appointment. I hope you can appreciate that. So I'm sitting in my, my kitchen, hoping the coffee is about to work and I can make sense of the stimulus around me. But what came to me was not so much the problem with my alternator and my <laughs> fan belt, but the problem with American history. Yeah. <laughs> so, which is better because we don't really know enough to talk about alternators and fan yeah. belts here on history against the grain, uh, do we? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, but what I came up with is that the story that a nation tells about the past, about itself, in other words, um, is basically the same way it governs mm -hmm. its people. So that in effect, if we tell only the canonical story, by my logic, who could we expect to most benefit from the telling, not only of American history, but the governing of America? Those same people, those same featured people. In that case, it would be literally be like propertied white, you know, males, mm -hmm. right? Um, elites, in other words. Well, let's put it to that. Could we say that, for example, the way that wealth skews in this country today reflects that demographic? I don't have the numbers at hand, but I'm saying it'd be a safe yes, bet that safe generally bet. throughout yes, the last 200 bet. years of history, that's the case. By the same token, if we are omitting or silencing 
say, enslaved black women from the story of American history? Could we expect to see in the governing of America over time a similar kind of marginalization, you know, or, or segregation of, of, of black women, whether enslaved or even after the abolition of slavery, and uh, not enslaved black women, but women, black women living in this country. Could we expect to see a kind of corresponding, yeah. you know, a, a effect? And, and, and look, I'm not saying that one causes the other, but there is a kind of organic connection, I think, there that, that if, if, if nothing else, we see the stories we tell reflecting that interest of power, right? Yeah. You know, in the, in the national telling yeah. of the story, reflecting that national interest of power. So, yeah, the stories we tell about the past uh, are the way we govern ourselves often as well, which is why then it's so critical for a guy like Alan Taylor, you know, to open up the narrative, to see a more complicated, certainly a more diverse, more multi-centered narrative about who we are and where we came from, simply for the fact that that's who, in fact, we are uh, today, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, look, let me just give you one quick example. One, in, in a, a very a small exception to the canon of revolutionary heroes is a woman named Phyllis Wheatley. And Phyllis Wheatley was an enslaved black woman living in Boston, Massachusetts at the time of the American Revolution. And what marks her as rather exceptional and why she's given a kind of halfway admission into the canonical status is that she was an exceptional talent as a, a, a poet, as, as, a, as a writer, as a person of language. I mean, this is a woman uh, who we know as Phyllis Wheatley, who was born, uh, by the way, in Africa. She was born uh, in 1753 in what is now uh, Senegal, mm -hmm. uh, the Senegambia region, Senegal or Gambia in West Africa. Uh, the historian Gwen Hall uh, suspects she may have been Mandinga, but as a child was enslaved and sent into the Atlantic slave trade where she arrives uh, as a seven-year-old enslaved child in Boston, where a white Boston family by the name of the Wheatley family purchased her, this seven-year-old child purchased her to be a domestic servant for Susanna Wheatley. Uh, and the Wheatleys were a fairly privileged Boston family with a lot of connection at the time, and it was deemed that Susanna Wheatley needed a uh, enslaved domestic servant to tend to her needs. Uh, and she later said, Susanna Wheatley did, that she picked the girl Phyllis, and they called her Phyllis because that was the name of the slave ship that she arrived on. Oof. We don't know what her given name would have been in Africa, right? But it was by that means she became Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis, the slave ship Wheatley, the enslavers who now purchased her. So Phyllis Wheatley, uh, she saw her, Susanna did, saw Phyllis, the seven-year-old, as a slender, frail female child. Uh, she was cloaked in uh, an old, uh, what appeared to be a remnant of maybe a carpet, a piece of fabric or something, but otherwise naked and quite frail. Uh, it's part of what um, uh, historian James Wolven, uh, the historian of slavery, English historian James Wolven, uh, talks about as the refuse 
among the slaves. That is those who were deemed too sick or incapacitated that were brought in uh, and either not even purchased or given away in effect. And in this case, so inauspicious, even on the level of enslavement was Phyllis Wheatley, that she was for a trifle given to uh, this uh, well-connected Boston family, the Wheatley family. Um, well, the Wheatleys, for their own reasons, decided to expose young Phyllis to Christian religion, which meant, among other things, teaching her to read and write. And this is where her prodigious talent began to manifest, because from the beginning, she not only learned English within a year, uh, but also began studying uh, the ancient languages of Greek and Latin and became relatively fluent in the reading of those languages. Uh, she studied British literature, world geography, uh, poetry, John Milton, for example, and Alexander Pope, two uh, popular English poets uh, from the period that were often read, but she also read the, the Greek and Latin classics of Virgil and Ovid. So, so a prodigious talent is this young Phyllis, the uh, prodigy, a prodigal talent is young Phyllis Wheatley, still enslaved, by the way, uh, and still responsible to the Wheatleys as a uh, enslaved domestic servant. But it was in uh, December of 1767 now that a poem was first published authored by young Phyllis Wheatley, published in the Newport, Rhode Island uh, Mercury newspaper. And this is thought to have been the first published poem by an enslaved black woman. There were other black woman poets to some extent before Phyllis Wheatley, but none of them as far as we know ever uh, published. And so this began a remarkable story where this talent was nurtured by the Wheatley family of seeing their enslaved servant girl, Phyllis, uh, give more time and attention to her talent and skill as a poet. Uh, she presumed to comment and write about contemporary events, for example, office in a religious frame, uh, her poems sort of, um, exalted, you know, some of the religious leaders of the day, George Whitfield, a famous, uh, 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 Anglican preacher who came through the colonies and won big crowds admiring his abilities to preach in public. She wrote uh, uh, an elegy to George Whitfield, for example, that was well received locally, did Phyllis Wheatley. By the time she was 18, she'd gathered a collection of 28 poems uh, for which she, with the help of uh, Susanna Wheatley, ran advertisements for subscribers in Boston newspapers. So they would put newspaper ads in and say, if you want to buy a copy of Phyllis, hmm. the slave girl who writes, if you want to buy a copy of her poem, here's who to contact kind of thing. Uh, so it was in the days before Amazon, you know, would deliver the books to your door. You kind of subscribed to various people whose work you wanted to uh, have access to. Uh, now, all of this is happening as the American Revolution is heating up. That is the conflict with England, uh, the various things going on in Boston, in particular her hometown, conflicts between the British administrators uh, and even the military conflicts now with the British uh, Army as troops are being stationed. All this starts to merge with the more familiar canonical story with things like the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, the, you know, the quartering of troops 
things that were and ultimately Lexington and Concord, Paul Revere's ride and the whole bit. So her poetry now is gaining more attention because it's being written in this context, but they can't get it published in Boston. They want to publish a volume of her poetry instead of just subscribing out individual poems, but they can't get a local publisher to pu a printer to publish it. So they strike on a different tack. She writes a poem that is dedicated uh, to uh, a powerful English politician, the Earl of Dartmouth, who had just been appointed to a prominent position in the imperial governing of the colonies. And Dartmouth was actually a supporter of abolition mm. of slavery, mm. right? So they took a bet that he wouldn't mind publishing or recommending the publication of poems written by an enslaved girl. The reason why it wasn't happening in Boston is because the leaders, the Sons of Liberty, the various voices of the revolutionary ferment in Boston are claiming that these unfair measures of taxation, for example, most famously beginning with the stamp tax, but then others that followed, that this was an attempt by the British imperial government, specifically parliament, to enslave the white colonists of North America. And that was the language they used at the time. They said that the parliament is attempting to enslave us by you know, forcing upon us unfair taxation. Now, in that context, it would have seemed maybe too bitterly ironic to publish the poems of an actual enslaved person. Maybe that was a little too close to home. So uh, yeah, the Bostonian revolutionary crowd wasn't too eager because uh, I mean, among other things, the English were already taunting them you know, Samuel Johnson's famous call, yeah. why are we hearing the yelp, the loudest yelps for liberty from the enslavers of people, you know? But Lord Dartmouth or the Earl of Dartmouth thought it was okay in this political context to make certain maybe propaganda game by publishing the poetry of an actual enslaved girl from Boston. Now, I hope I'm capturing the irony of yeah. all this for you, Josh. Yeah. Uh, but this is getting caught up in imperial politics, in other words. Boston doesn't want Phyllis Wheatley for one reason. The English do mm -hmm. want Phyllis Wheatley for another reason. And it was all part of this imperial back and forth at the time, right? So she goes to England as, a, as an enslaved girl with a young uh, son of Susanna Wheatley. They travel to England where she's introduced to high society in England. Um, sort of, you know, distinguished uh, English statesmen of the day, including the Earl of Dartmouth, for example, Sir Brooke Watson, soon to be Lord Mayor of London, the philanthropist John Thornton. And lo and behold, there in England, there in London at the time, straight from Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin, who was there lobbying on behalf of the Pennsylvania colony. So she meets Benjamin Franklin while she's in London. Um, and she gets her book published. I mean, they agree, a, a London book publisher agrees to sell the first volume of poetry, uh, the first edition, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, will be published in London in 1773, becoming the first full volume of poetry then to be published by not only a black woman in the colonies, but an enslaved person as well. It was during this time she hears that Susanna Wheatley has grown ill. She has to return, does Phyllis Wheatley, to tend to her enslaver. They would have called them mistresses at the time, but to tend to the ill Susanna, who is uh, overjoyed 
on the one hand that Phyllis has been able to publish, but needs her back in Boston to tend to her during her illness. An illness, by the way, that she won't recover from. Uh, Susanna Wheatley will die in 1774, and that will be the, the occasion upon which Phyllis is granted her freedom. Mm -hmm. She's emancipated mm -hmm. in 1774. So she's no longer an enslaved servant of the Wheatleys. She is now a free black woman living in Boston. She marries a free black man by the name of John Peters. She becomes Phyllis Peters at that point. John Peters was a guy who had a hard time bringing in an income apparently, because where the story goes from here is into a kind of death spiral for Phyllis of both bearing children and suffer, suffering increased poverty during the wartime straits and depression of the War of Independence in, in Boston. In other words, what's going to happen to Phyllis, she's not going to be able to get any more work published, not a volume of poetry published in Boston. They still won't do that. She resorts to sort of selling by subscription her poems. At one point, she goes to work trying to get the courts in Massachusetts to prevent other uh, entities outside Boston from copying her poetry and selling it for a profit, what we'd call intellectual copyright. She's one of the first to try and doggedly pursue the intellectual ownership of her own poems because she's desperate to gain some kind of revenue. But in the end, it's a sad story because Phyllis Wheatley uh, does sort of slip into a kind of obscurity at that point um, through, you know, the loss of, um, you know, sponsorship by publishers. And even though she keeps writing, she writes personal letters, she writes some patriotic wartime poems, um, basically isn't able to recover the kind of momentum that she had had earlier, certainly with the British publishers, because that's going to be pulled, that carpet's going to be pulled out from under her too now as the revolution, the war of independence deepens. So she's unable basically to earn any kind of revenue. Her husband apparently leaves her in penury and poverty. She uh, bears children, but has a miserable time trying to provide for house and home. And according to the lore that follows, basically dies at age, so oh, I think it's 31, uh, basically a broken woman. Mm -hmm. All right, so... Yeah, there's more to the story, but that's essentially it. And here's what I want to say about this, is that typically Phyllis Wheatley is mentioned in the kind of canonical story of the American Revolution. Um, but she's mentioned only, what, as a symbol of the liberty that washed over the American revolutionary effort. In other words, here was an enslaved black girl that was raised to celebrity status through her astonishing talent as a poet. See, Josh, the American Revolution really was about liberty. Are you getting this? What part of the story is typically not brought in? Everything else in her life? Everything else. Yeah, including the details of how she couldn't get published in Boston, including you know her continued enslavement, including uh, the ultimate spiral into poverty uh, and, you know, inglorious fate. Because, you know, part of what these stories do, right, the canonical, the, the, the sort of sacred stories and others, what they do is they introduce someone like Phyllis, right? And having introduced them, the narrative projection is set so that we imagine what? That represented a breakthrough moment in liberty that kept on growing beyond Phyllis right. Wheatley. But in the case of right. Phyllis Wheatley, 
it didn't last even a couple of years before her personal trajectory was straight into poverty, uh, ill health, and an early death. By taking that part out of the story, we can pretend that the trajectory remains what? It, it remains that progressive story of, of freedom and liberty. And it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier that, you know, in some ways, you know, her, her quote unquote freedom when she's emancipated, you know, that's that can be seen as this moment of, uh, you know, as you said, the waves of freedom washing over everybody, not just property whites. But then you start realizing, well, that what does that freedom mean without the freedom to actually support oneself, to provide house and food and and to raise her children, right? It, it, it's this kind of hollow freedom, this hollow, quote unquote, equality or rights, which are meaningless without the ability to actually survive within this this world you've been, you know, freed into or liberated into. That's not real liberation in the end. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think I think what it does, you know, is it not only um, makes more precarious, you know, that that inviolable arc of the, you know, the sacred story, the canonical story uh, by by problem. This is a word historians like, you know, by problematizing mm -hmm. it, in other words, by making it you know, more complicated and even contradictory than is usually presented. And so, um, you know, what happens in that formal storytelling is it simply gets muted. Yeah. You know, what Michelle Rolfe Truot, right, talked about is silencing. It's the silences in the story, you know, the, the presence of the people who are there but rendered silent. You know, it's the air brushing out from the family portrait you know, of, of the black sheep, you know, or something like that. Uh, in this case, it's the black woman, you know, literally, you know, the enslaved woman who is used briefly, but, but then silenced, you know, that story is silenced. Never, never mind those who never rose, the vast majority of enslaved, but who never rose to prominence in the first place. They're not even going to get you know, in the brief mentioning of, of the story, they're only going to be referred to in sort of what a, a kind of quantitative terms as enslaved people, mm -hmm. you know, in the aggregate, not even individuated, you know, uh, people, even though, even though, and, and there's not time to do it in today's episode, but we'll come back to it. And I've, I've referred to it in other episodes, even though during the American Revolution, enslaved black women were among the most active on the ground in pursuing the true freedom of abolition. That is whether from running away, becoming fugitives, or in a place like Boston, petitioning the legislature to emancipate them. And we have the so-called freedom petitions from the American Revolution that were either written by enslaved black women who had learned to read and write like Phyllis Wheatley, so their, their, their Christian masters could give them instruction in the Bible or so, or by a white patron who wrote these petitions for them. In either case, they're coming directly from these women. Even something like, Josh, here's a silence for you in the canonical story of the American Revolution. It's often referred to as the non-importation agreements, the homespun movement, where patriotic colonial women began knitting their family's clothing at home rather than buying finished goods from Britain. 
as a protest, a kind of boycott of the importation of British clothing. And so, you know, lauded in heroic revolutionary terms are these, these women, but almost never is it suggested that there were anything other than white, you know, what we'd call homemakers, mm -hmm. that is, uh, you know, white women who are wives and mothers. But in fact, in a place like Boston, so much of the domestic work, including, and, and this was Phyllis Wheatley, besides being an astonishing poet, was actually a seamstress. She did all the needlework in the, in the Wheatley family. So if you're going to if you're going to sew homespun clothing to get around, you know, a British boycott, a patriotic British boycott, who's going to be actually doing that work? Yeah, the servants and the slaves. The enslaved yeah. black woman. Yeah, I mean, they're the, they're the ones who are sewing the needle, you know, the needles for freedom, as it were, but they're not getting credit. So, uh, yeah, what I want to say about this in the end is this represents then the telling of a story with lots of silences, obviously, mm -hmm. a story that is presumed now to be inviolable, non-approachable, right, as a kind of sacred, uh, you know, what, scripture or something, um, that not only is full then of those silences, but then renders itself almost completely useless as a story, as an explanation yeah. of something yeah. for the problems that have confronted us ever since, including those in our own time, which involve questions of racial justice, social justice, everything from, you know, police brutality to generational poverty, you know, you name it. Uh, people left out of the story, in effect, get left out of the American dream, as it were, you know, going forward into our own day. And I wanted to leave it uh, with a quote from Jennifer Morgan, who's a contemporary uh, black scholar, uh, historian, who's written about uh, slavery in the Western Hemisphere, and particularly uh, the enslavement uh, experience of women uh, throughout the uh time that slavery was, you know, virtually universal in the Western the colonies of the Western Hemisphere. One of the really creative scholars working to excavate the lives of enslaved black women. And uh, in a recent interview, she was she was asked about this. Uh, she was asked, what do you wish your readers to gain from thinking about, in effect, the lives of enslaved black women? She says, it has been at the forefront of scholarship on slavery in the early black Atlantic for some time to understand black women and men as historical subjects, to not reduce them to one dimensional victims or revolutionaries, to understand the complexity of their personhood as we work to construct the processes by which they define themselves and built new communities. My own effort to name black women as thinkers, as persons who brought analytic power to the uneven terrain on which they found themselves is part of that effort. It is a gesture on my part that is rooted in my concern that one dimensionality is part of the afterlife of slavery, a part of the ongoing problem of racism and racial hierarchies. If we can't see black people as complex historical actors from the distance of time, I fear that we will always be mired in the violence of misrecognition, in the structures that reduce black life and render people discardable.
hearing that story, Chris, is just a reminder of something that I think we we talk about a lot, which is that, you know, unfortunately, the way history has often been told, um, it does as much to obscure people of the past as to enlighten us uh, as to how people live their lives. Um, and, you know, as you're suggesting, it's not completely, um, it's not accidental. I mean, Gordon Wood, as, as you, that, that quote, makes it pretty clear that for certain types of historians, and I would say for most historians uh, in, in the past, it was at least implicitly or explicitly understood that what they were trying to do, what their stories were about, was promoting certain ideas, uh, to promote certain sacred objects, uh, devotional figures, shrines and totems that would make up collectively our idea of the nation. And within that, certain people belong, certain people didn't belong. Certain people like Phyllis Wheatley could be used, but only for very specific purposes and then discarded. Um, and what we've been trying to do throughout the podcast, I think, is to suggest that that's not good enough, that having these sacred stories, having these catechisms, as you once called it, of, of history, not only does not um, accurately present the past, is not factual, is not truthful, but it blinds us in the present to our experiences and to the world happening outside our window. So I want to end here with a quote from, from one of my favorite uh, contemporary writers. This is um, Pankaj Mishra, whose book Bland Fanatics is a collection of essays. And uh, in this essay here, he kind of, I think, highlights the problems of uh, of telling stories about herself that are not accurate. He's, but he says, What has become clear since the coronavirus crisis is that modern democracies have for decades been lurching towards moral and ideological bankruptcy, unprepared by their own publicists to cope with the political and environmental disasters that unregulated capitalism ceaselessly inflicts, even on such winners of history as Britain and the U.S. Having labored to exclude a smelly past of ethnocide, slavery and racism, and the ongoing stink of corporate finality from the perfumed notion of Anglo-American superiority, the bland fanatics have no nose for democracy's true enemies. Besieged both at home and abroad, their authority as overlords, policemen, and interpreters of the globe is increasingly challenged. If they repetitively ventilate their rage and frustration, or whinge incessantly about cancel culture and the radical left, it is because that is all they can do. Their own mind-numbing simplicities about democracy its enemies, friends, the free world, and all that sort of thing, have doomed them to experience a contemporary world as an endless series of shocks and debacles. If rage, confusion, and bewilderment mark their visages, it is because today their narcissism lies shattered. Self-congratulation can no longer pose as an analytical framework and rancorous ethno-nationalism in India and criminally inept autocrats in Britain and America have bluntly clarified that liberal democracy is not what we have. Um, so I think that's a call for the need to confront our world as it is, not as our publicists suggest it should be, and not as our elites would like to believe it, it is. And we will continue to try to present that in future episodes. But thank you for listening to History Against the Grain. Um, and we will be back soon enough to light your ears with more of the profane. Take care. It's a sin when you play into ignorance Another one closing your eyes again So you don't have to see what's happening Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV Stop sucking a cycle so we